Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here. Welcome to episode two of A Thousand Tiny Steps. As I'm saying that, welcome, I think to myself, what will be like to say, hey everybody, Barb Higgins here. Welcome to episode 253. (laughs) Always me jumping ahead. So here we are today. It's a Saturday in August. And before I start with with what I'm going to talk about today, which is the the beginnings of Jack-Jack, I started the day today with with Gracie and we had this wonderful beginning. As, As I said in my intro, I belong to the CrossFit community. And one of the CrossFit gyms I work out in had a a beach workout where they brought a bunch of equipment up to Hampton Beach from Amesbury, CrossFit Amesbury. And we had this amazing workout on the beach. And so I brought Gracie with me. I talk about her all the time and I attend a mother's class there, Mom Strong. And I talk about Gracie a lot. I'm her mom. I could actually bring her to Mom Strong as my child. (laughs) She could run around with the other kids. At any rate, the morning was phenomenal. And it just draws back to me something that's always been important and that I'm trying desperately to create for a little baby Jack. And that is a sense of family and community that's bigger than just the people that you live with or who raised you or who you're related to by blood. After the workout, I had a wonderful conversation with a woman named Stephanie in the ocean. The waves were rough. It was just a blast. And we started talking about family and sharing some of our trials and tribulations. And that what we find out sometimes is that family is often not at all who you're related to or married to or or whomever. Sometimes it's much more than that. Um, And I share with her my desire to create a community for Jack. You know, I'm old, I'm 58, Kenny is 65, almost 66, Gracie's 20. Here's a baby in a world full of adults. And so I try to surround Jack with as many opportunities to meet other littles and their families as possible so that he always feels a part of a bigger community. So how does this tie into Jack, Jack even arriving? I guess it ties in essentially to me as a parent. I was never going to have children. I would often point to my stomach and say, there's no vacancy sign here in this baby hotel. I was never, I just wasn't going to have children. I had a pretty tough childhood. I have uh, generations in my family of, of trials and tribulations and abuse and such. And I thought, you know, it ends with me. I just wasn't going to do it. And then I met Kenny and he was the person that made me feel that I could safely <laughs> have children. Now, let me preface that by saying my first baby was a little baby named Gordon Thomas, who never made it out of my tummy alive. And I didn't plan on having him. He was one of those babies I was you know, actively running and competing and I was on the pill. And for all of you that need to know how the pill works and doesn't work, when you take an antibiotic, it can make the pill ineffective. This was prior to me being a health educator. I had no idea, I got real sick, had, you know, took antibiotics and um, was pregnant. Now, another thing with me and the pill is I would go off it once a year for a month so I could have a period and just sort of make sure my body was normal. For some reason, this was important to me as a woman. I just wanted to make sure everything was still working. So I went off the pill shortly after I now realize I had conceived Jack, not Jack, conceived baby Gordy and had a period. So in my mind, I had no idea I was pregnant. I didn't find out I was pregnant with that baby until 14 weeks. Then I had a myriad of tests, which revealed a heart defect and baby Jack, baby Jack, there I go again. (laughs) 
baby Gordy came into the world at just, just after 25 weeks. So I really had, you know, a 10 week pregnancy with him an 11 week pregnancy, just a couple of months, end of June to end of August, knowing that he was there and going through round after round of tests and every test giving one more piece of bad news and the next piece of bad news, making the next piece of bad news. This ties into Jack in a bit, which will come actually ties in much later in my podcast series on Jack, but but that was the summer of 1999 and, and delivering a baby at Dartmouth-Hitchcock that I couldn't bring home with me was horrifying. He was teeny fit right in the palm of my hand. But he began my journey as a mother once I had had a baby inside me. I and mean, for those of you that know what I'm talking about, it's a pretty profound experience. You know, we live in a society and a culture that's very separate from nature. You know, we have all these modern conveniences that take away our need sometimes to focus on our bodies. We have medicines to fix, fix things and pain relievers and activities and things to keep us busy. And, you know, so much of life can keep us away from, you know, the basic gentle sounds of the earth and the insides of our bodies. So I hadn't really thought of having a baby until Gordy. Gordy gets lost. Kenny and I are not yet married. We're just together, initially together. It was a pretty rough summer. And after that, I had this, this rebirth, so to speak, of being heavy, heavy, <laughs> being healthy and fit. And maybe actually being able to have a baby and be healthy. We donated his body to the Philadelphia Children's Hospital. They have an amazing neonatal cardiac unit there. Children's Hospital, CHOP it's called. And many, for many mothers, I think it would be hard to give away their little baby's body. But I prayed about it and how I felt at the time, having never, having never delivered a healthy baby. You know, it's a different, I have a different mindset now. I think I would still donate his body, but it would be very different for me. But it just seemed like the right thing to do. I didn't know I was pregnant for 14 weeks. Who knows? I wanted to know if I had done something to cause that birth defect. His poor little heart was upside down and backwards. I donated his body. And several months later, maybe even a year later, I received his autopsy report, which is an unnatural thing to read. It gave me great comfort, however, because it was determined that he never could have lived outside of my tummy. He was fine as a little frog floating around in the, in the liquid in there, but would never have been able to convert oxygen, get it from the air into his blood, given the nature of the heart defect. I also received news several months after that, or maybe no, several years after that, that they had been able to learn some things from his heart that they could use to help other babies. And the big problem for baby Gordy was that if he even made the nine months, once he was born, he would, you know, slowly suffocate, drown, you know, just drown in his own, you know, fluid and blood and such. And that was a terrifying thought for me, terrifying thought to know that the, what, that what they could learn from his sweet little heart could help them figure out how to fix the heart enough to keep the baby alive long enough to fix it for living outside the uterus was of great comfort to me. And so that was that. And, and my life sort of went along. In my grief groups, a lot of mothers are devastated by this type of loss. And I was as well. I, I cried and cried and cried. We didn't tell anybody about it. At the time that this happened, I knew, Kenny knew, my mother knew, my father knew. That was about it. A very small number of people knew, my close friend, Polly. A, a very small number. Kenny and I, neither of us were divorced yet. We had, were not planning on having a baby. We had just gotten together. Well, we'd been together about a year, but you know, we, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't at all something we had planned to do. And we didn't want to hurt those involved. Our families, our families were foremost in our minds. And so we just suffered through this quietly. And what I remember, one, one thing that stands out to me is I'm a major Bruce Springsteen fan. And the day that we were scheduled to go in for delivery, I chose to deliver him and he didn't even make the first round of contractions. And I know that's a controversial choice. And so for those of you out there that think I did the wrong thing, please feel free to pray for me as much as you need to do and want to do. But I, but after reading the autopsy report and, and knowing what his, what his short life has done for other babies, I feel reaffirmed in my decision. So we chose the, the latest date that we could, you know, we, the one that, you know, that the doctors recommended for my health and all. 
we had tickets to a Bruce Springsteen concert that weekend. And I was so sad, like, oh, and, you know, Bruce Springsteen tickets are hard to come by. And it's, you know, I remember at the time thinking what a trivial thing this was, a concert, but, but it was like a comfort thing. And it was like this reminder that my life was drastically different. So I remember going to, to a ticket place in Manchester, New Hampshire, and they swapped the tickets out for me. He was playing two weeks later in the same place. It was in Boston. And so I had these tickets and two weeks after giving birth to baby Gordy, I took Kenny to his first ever Springsteen concert. And that, that will always be a wonderful memory for me. It was a hard time. It was a, just a hard, sad time. I remember we bought a little onesie, a little Boston Celtics onesie, and, you know, we didn't have a baby to give it to, but years later, Gracie wore that. And so, you know, it was one of those things that might've been a Red Sox onesie. I don't remember. At any rate, Gracie was able to wear, we have both. So I don't, I don't remember which was which, but that, that experience was profound for me. And I, I came away from it a different person, which of course you do. My day with Gracie today, after having baby Gordy, I, I realized that I did want to be a mother and that it was something that would be profoundly exciting for me. And so Gracie was very much a planned baby. We weren't married yet, but our divorces were final. You know, things were, things were coming together and this was something we felt we were ready to do. I became pregnant with Gracie and this was in August of 2000. So a year later, I found out I was pregnant almost exactly a year later. I became a mother with Gracie and about a year and a half into Gracie's life, I realized, you know, this little girl needs somebody to hang out and wait for Santa with. She needs a partner in crime. And so again, we decided to make a Molly and we made Molly. And she came about, you know, two, almost two years after Gracie. So here I was now full in the throes of motherhood. And, you know, what I didn't like about it sometimes was how difficult it made things, you know, scheduling and having a messy house and getting things done and always needing help. And and being the mother, you know, there can be a room full of relatives. And if a baby needs to cry, it finds its mother. And so these were some things I remember as being difficult. But I also remember that I, from the, from the first moment that I knew I was pregnant, I was excited to be a mother. I, it was a good thing. So fast forward all these years to Molly's death. And I remember, you know, you have a mindset about your children. It's, I, I compare a lot of things to running a race. And if I know how far the race is and where I am in the race, and I know how far I have left to go. And I, had, I can focus my mind very well. Molly was 12, just turned 13 when she died. And Gracie was 15. So in my head, I still had another year of middle school. And then, then Gracie's high school and all four years of Molly's high school. You know, like I still had five good years of being a mom to little girls. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have it in my head that I was almost going to have a high school graduate. And then Molly died and, and everything just shifts. And, uh, and if those of you who are old enough to remember the Twilight Zone, the whole premise of that TV show was that everything looked the same, but it wasn't. Something was just off. And, and it was like almost like a parallel universe. Stephen King's book, The Langoliers, comes to mind as well. That's a, that's a story that is two realities side by side. So when you lose a child, at least for me, it was the stunning, stark reality that Molly would never come back. And that was really hard for me to take. That was a shock. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I, whenever I thought it, I'd start hyperventilating. You know, the first, I would say eight months, the moment I woke up in the morning, I flew off the floor and went outside because I couldn't lie there. I couldn't lie still and think I'd get out on the porch and have my coffee. I'd look at my phone and it was a, and it was a panic sort of thing. When it came time to go to bed, I'd have the TV on the TV on. And then if it was too bright and we needed to turn it off, I'd put my, my phone on so I could listen to the Big Bang Theory. And it was just distraction until I could fall asleep. It was an intense time. And during that time, my thoughts around, and then the other side of it, the shock is the sad reality that everything is different now. I remember shortly after Molly died, becoming a bit obsessed with having another baby. It was like this panic-driven thought. And at the time I was having those thoughts, I was still, you know, in that first, in those first six weeks after Molly died, 
you lose everything when you lose a baby. And I don't want to digress over there, but I shared a lot of these panicky feelings with several people in my life. Kenny knew my, my panicky feelings. My friend Robin, with whom I no longer speak, or at least at this point, knew how panicky I was. And Roy, who I'd gone to Amsterdam with, also knew what a mess I was at this time. And so these dreams were intense and everyone had a different take on it. I remember sitting in the yard with Robin and looking and she looking her looking at me and saying, why would you want to do this? You know, you're in your fifties. This is a crazy idea. And Kenny didn't say much, you know, I told him about the dreams and, you know, he was in his own level of shock, you know, sitting in his own pile of rubble and dust. So my, my blabberings didn't always mean much. I never said anything about this to Gracie. You know, she was stunned enough when she was a child. And I don't, you know, I don't recall intensely my conversations with Roy about it. I know that he was so concerned about me and worried that I wasn't, wasn't sort of normal in my head, which maybe I'm not. So at any rate, I didn't give it much credence. I just thought I was in the throes of grief and, and my emotional mindset was telling me to have a baby. So I went to my gynecologist and this was July of 2016. And I had some appointments to make sure I'm okay. And, you know, I thought it's check to see if I'm going into menopause and all the things that would go through anyone's mind who was thinking of creating a child. And I asked, I talked to my nurse practitioner about it and she was furious with me. She just yelled at me and really it made me feel terrible. She told me, you know, you're not right. And this would be unsafe. And what are you thinking? And this is so wrong. She really, really, it really upset her that I was thinking this and it upset me. I started to cry. So I never went back there, (laughs) but I did, I did sort of chalk it up as, okay, this is just a crazy dream. And she's right. This is a foolish thing to follow through on, but it stayed with me. And a lot of it was Gracie. My main reason for having Molly was to give Gracie a sibling. So Gracie wouldn't be alone. And now here Gracie was alone. So not only had I gave her somebody, but but, but now she'd lost that person. Had she always been an, an only child, she would never have known. So the, the emotional swarming of feelings that happened to me after losing Molly included a lot of Gracie, which is why mornings like today were so good, you know, driving over to the beach with Gracie and doing a CrossFit workout together and meeting like-minded people and swimming and walking on the ocean and, and reminiscing. It's still very, very hard for us to talk about Molly a lot because you just get sad and you get a knot in your stomach. And, you know, it seems like yesterday and it was, you know, five and a half years ago. And then it seems like a hundred years ago and it was five and a half years ago. In the beginning days of my life without Molly, this was one of my crazy thoughts. So the summer went by, Roy and I decided at that point that we would end our, our connection, that it was too painful. I, you know, I needed, I needed to focus on Gracie and my going away on that trip had been tr- stressful for her. We, you know, started our own sort of separate lives. This didn't change the thoughts in my head, but it was one less person that I had to sort of run it by. I stopped talking about it to Robin as well. I just realized that whatever this was, it was my message. And what it was, was a dream, this intense dream that would come to me Sometimes it would be a sound dream. There were no people, just the voice, Barbara, you have to have a baby. Sometimes I would just wake up in a panic and that's what was on my mind. I woke up in a panic every day in the months after Molly died. But sometimes when I opened my eyes, before I thought about Molly, I thought about the fact that I was supposed to have this baby. It was a little bit terrifying. Fall came and school started. And that was another horrible turning point for us. Gracie really fell apart at that time because the sort of the the la 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 of summer was gone now. And you go back to school and everyone else is picking up like nothing happened and Gracie's still walking around numb. So this was a really tough time and I was coaching cross country and I was driving home one day and I have to drive by the middle school coming home from Bow High School where I was coaching to my house. I would drive down South Street and right by Runlet Middle School and Molly should have been an eighth grader there. So driving by, I'd do this so I didn't have to see the school. So I was doing that and I was driving by and I'm in the car and it's about 11 in the morning And I hear this booming voice in my car. So this is when y'all can think Barb's lost her marbles. And it just said, Barbara, it's time to have a baby. And so 
I had to pull the car over because it, it startled me so much. And I thought, okay, I either need Seroquel or some really strong anti-psych medicine or, or I need to have a baby. So I called from my car, Dr. Shottery, and he's the OB that ended up managing my Jack-Jack pregnancy. Once I was done with a fertility specialist, I made an appointment and it was like, for, not for a couple of months, but that was fine. I'd made the appointment and that calmed down the dreams for a while. Whenever I took any action on this, things would calm down a bit. So the fall tooled along. We went on a family vacation. Kenny, Gracie, and I went to Hawaii, which was wonderful. We got through, it sort of helped, helped us get through the holidays. Molly was the holiday guru in our house. The moment a holiday was over, you were decorating for the next one. We had a rule that she couldn't talk about a Halloween costume until Easter was over. So when Easter was late, Molly was a mess because she wanted to talk about Halloween costumes right away. We got through our holidays that year by going to Hawaii for the most of November. And then we went to Florida over Christmas. And because I had made the appointment, the, the voices in my head quelled a bit. I did have one significant dream. And, and this was at the end of the summer. And I remember this because the air coming in the window was a bit cooler and our heads were up toward the bay window. We, we slept a variety of ways on that floor over the two and a half years that Gracie and I slept on that living room floor. This cool breeze came in. So I was having a dream and this was an intense Molly dream. Actually, it was my first one where Molly really talked to me and, and I'll never forget it. But it was the beginning of the dream and the end of the dream didn't match the Molly part. The beginning and the end were about having a baby. I'm in the beginning, I'm in a pickup truck and I'm, and I'm looking, I'm driving, but it's like going backwards. And so I'm watching everything get smaller behind me. And this, this, some, like a voice in the radio was telling me that the time is going by and taking a long time on these decisions. And if you take too long on decisions and then the end of the, and then I got into the Molly dream. Suddenly I'm in my neighborhood and I'll talk about the Molly dream, the Molly part of it more when I talk about Molly and, and what I went through around her death. But this was our first visitation and she told me she loved me. And it was a very intense dream. And I woke up before it was over because I could hear myself calling to her, Molly, Molly, I love you. And then I closed my eyes because I wanted to go back to sleep. I didn't want to wake up. And I went right back into the dream. And at the end of the dream, it was now nighttime. And I was on a country road in Tilton and I came upon a home. It was this white farmhouse, which had begin, been in the beginning of the dream as well. It was what I was looking at as I was backing up in the pickup truck. And I was a porch and there were two dance moms there. And one of them, her name is Stacy. She goes, here, Barb, drink this and you'll have your baby. And it was a, like a little vial of fluid. And I took it and I drank, drank the fluid. And then I woke up the liquid. So that was probably the strongest dream around having this baby that happened. And again, we're still in 2016. So I went to Dr. Shottery and we did some blood work and ascertained that I was sort of in the beginning phases, mid phases of, of menopause. I had started having some night sweats and things. It was trauma-based. I hadn't had any real menopause symptoms until Molly's death. And then boom, there it was. So he, you know, he said, I'm sorry, I can't just shoot you up with estrogen and tell you good luck. You'll have to go to a fertility specialist. And here's the thing. And this was another piece of what made Jack's birth so great is that most places cut you off. No, we only take you up to 45. No, we stop at 50. There are not a lot of places where a woman in her fifties can go for fertility treatment. I'm hoping that Jack's birth changes that. My friend, my good friend, Polly had had years and years of, of health issues and she had a wonderful array of doctors in the Boston area. And she connected me with one of her doctors who I called. And when I called this, this doctor, she said, we don't do that. We don't do fertility here, but there's a, there's a clinic in Stoneham, Cardoni Reproductive Health, and they do women in their fifties. So give them a call. And so we did, that was, well, we, up until this point, this was me. I didn't, I wasn't bringing Kenny to all these doctor's appointments. I wasn't coming home and telling them how they went. I wasn't, you know, the, the conversations that I had with Dr. Shottery in that appointment about how to conceive a baby and, and eggs and donor eggs and sperm and donor sperm and frozen and fresh and all the different ways that women can become mothers was overwhelming at the time. I couldn't think about it. And I was still very stuck in 2003 when Molly was born and feeling like I was supposed to re repeat 
this. So I wasn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't share that with anybody. So it wasn't until about December that we finally, I finally got an appointment to go to Cardone Reproductive Health. So I, I asked Kenny, would you go with me? Would you follow through on this with me? So this precedes another common misnomer that, that Jack would, that, you know, we're this fluffy, happy family and let's have a baby. We're a mess and we were much more of a mess then, but, you know, grief, surviving grief and child loss is different from family to family, but the divorce rates are huge. Kenny and I have been divorced since 2014. So it's not like we could get divorced. And we spent the first two and a half years. So at that time, living side by side in this house, the three of us and functioning in our own little spider web of hell, so to speak. Not that we didn't communicate, not that we didn't do things together on our vacations, not that we didn't provide one another comfort. We did all of those things, but a husband, a wife, and a daughter. No, 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 no. We were a mother that lost a child, a father that lost a child and a sister that lost a sister. And none of that, none of, you know, the most connected relationship I had, of course, would have been with Gracie. She was my child. And she was the main reason that I just let so much of the rest of my life go. I had mentioned Kenny and I were separated at the time and had Molly never gotten sick. You know, I speculate these things all the time. What if, what if, what if, and I can't even really go there, but I do know that that at the time I wasn't thinking, oh, I can have a baby and then we'll all be in love with each other again and light will be a happy family. I couldn't even process beyond the point that I was supposed to follow through and try, that I was supposed to try to have this baby. We go to see, so I asked Kenny, would you go with me? Because it will probably look better at the fertility clinic if I have a, a partner. When you've lost something like a child, anything to sort of recreate happiness, you jump at. And so he came and we had our first visit and we had to give extensive information, health information. Kenny was on kidney dialysis at the time. You know, we talked about Molly. I had to list all the medicines I was on. The list wasn't super long then. It got a lot longer. We had to talk about everything. So we did We did an initial interview and and we, we, we passed all of that. So our next interview was a bit more invasive. I had to have, I had to go, I had to have some physical tests. I had to have a psychological test. You know, they don't just take your money and give you a baby. There were two or three appointments with, with a lot of testing, mostly on me, very much centered on me because I would be carrying the baby. But at the end of it all, it was probably February of 2017. I was told that, yes, I've passed all the tests that my insides were perfectly able to carry a pregnancy, according to this fertility clinic, according to Dr. Cardoni. We were excited. So I got the folder and we opened it up and I'm looking at all the different ways, things I might have to do to become pregnant and what does everything cost? And, and really the minimum cost at that point would have been about $30,000. Driving home, we we're really quiet because we didn't have any money. I wasn't working yet. I was still barely surviving. None of us were doing anything. Our income was, you know, we had raised some money when Molly died and we were parceling that out carefully. Kenny received some disability income. We cut out a lot of expenses. It was, it was a bit of a disastrous time. And there was, there was no $30,000 for fertility. And I wouldn't even have known who to ask. Like, you know, how do I, do I borrow money from somebody to do that? No, absolutely not. Like, yeah, you just don't. So I looked up at the roof of the cars we're driving and I just asked the sky to stop sending me the dreams that I had done the best I could. And if I could make it happen someday that I would. And that was that. So the dreams went away. It's public knowledge that our family was involved in a lawsuit and the lawsuit had just been filed at that time. So for all of 2017 and the first six months of 2018, we were heavily involved in the details of the lawsuit. And that was very time consuming and very focusing. We each had certain tasks to do. And actually, I think it gave me a lot of focus when people ask me about lawsuits and is it worth it? And what do you go through? It's tremendously difficult. It's not an easy process. Insurance companies don't want to have to pay people money for things and, and nobody wants to take the blame. And this is all very, very generic. I don't want to pay a lot of money to people for things and I don't like to take blame. You know, it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult road to navigate, but it kept us busy and it gave us purpose. And I, and I was happy to be doing it because 
it made me feel like I was doing something to justify and honor Molly, to honor her existence and, and justify, not justify, I don't know, just let her know that I was fighting for her. When the lawsuit was over, when the lawsuit ended, that process ended, it was the end of June in 2018. At that point, the dreams came back. We had gone through Molly's death, losing Molly, but not only losing Molly, losing so many other things, losing everything we thought of as a family. If Kenny and I had ended up separating, maybe he would have a happy life somewhere else right now. Who knows? Maybe maybe things would have just been different. Maybe not. But everything that was real on May 7th stopped being real on May 8th because she was gone. And it's so hard to explain that to people. I have wonderful friends, you know, and they're, and they're as couples, they're still together years and years after they've lost their children, they're together and strong and loving one another. And, and then other families fall apart immediately. Grief is a tricky thing. The hardest part about grief, I will say, and, and this was true in the Jack process in the beginning is it's like the love language thing. You know, how do you want to give comfort and how do you want to receive comfort? And none of us, Kenny, Gracie, myself, my mother, my friends, Roy, and none of us could give or receive comfort in the same way as before Molly died. At least that's how it felt to me. And so I would be sobbing and want someone to pat my back and say, they're there. And I, and people would leave, Kenny would leave the room, not because he didn't care about me, but I think my crying made him cry. So, you know, you get into these, these funky things. And the other piece of Jack's beginning is what am I thinking having a baby and bringing him into this? But I'll have to reiterate at this point, it still wasn't about the actual reality of Jack. People ask me still, why did you want a baby? At that time, it was not that I wanted a baby. I was being told I was supposed to have a baby. And so I felt like I was following, I was following the instructions. Whose instructions? I do not know. Those of you that believe in the spiritual realm and an afterlife and the, the idea of life after death in whatever terms you believe it, Perhaps maybe it was somebody from the other side, someone who knew something. Maybe it was just an overriding emotional feeling in me that came through as a dream. Maybe it was a psychological problem. You know, it depends on your belief system and, and how we deal with these things as to why at my age, I was 53 then, 54, why I would be contemplating having a baby. I have to be clear, it didn't consume me all the time. It really didn't. All of 2017 and most of 2018, it wasn't something I thought about all the time. I was able to think about other things, mostly that Molly was dead. As we started, you know, as the, when the lawsuit ended and we started to turn a corner in sort of how our day-to-day -day life would be, the thoughts of the baby came rushing back. So Jack, Jack and his reality was really begun way back then, even though we couldn't do the actual, you know, <laughs> get into the, the getting pregnant and all of that, that those things take a long, long time. Some of the miraculous things at that point for me, you know, my life is full of miracles. Some of the people that I met in this journey, I have to say that Dr. Cardoni and his nurse, Tammy, from the very beginning early on were wonderful to us, very supportive. This is a major piece of, of motherhood, fertility clinics telling you that, that you know, you're too old. You're not too old. You know, I'm not too old. I'm 57. Will Jack feel funny at age 13 having a 70 year old mother? Perhaps it just means I have to take care of myself and be as healthy and well as I can be. So though all, none of those, you know, all of those details are sometimes the first things other people ask. What happened to you that made you want to have this baby? And it really was, it really was the dreams. When they came back in 2018, again, they weren't as specific as before. And it only took one or two dreams for me to, to reconnect with Dr. Cardoni. And he was actually very excited. So now think about it, almost two years have gone by. So now I'm not 53, I am 55. And so 55 is typically you know, the end game, that's the age, that's as old as you can be. So the fact that I, that I started the process while I was 55 allows you at, later to go over into age 56, which I didn't know at the time. I just felt like I have this, I'm sort of under the gun now. 
So we made those initial appointments and started the process. So I think what I'll do is I'll talk you through the, the second part of this, and then I'll stop and save because the, the logical next step, the actual year two of this, is a, it's, a, it's its own story. Back to Dr. Cardoni we go. And now we get into much more specifics. The biggest thing for me is that I was taking several medications. Sometimes you might notice if you're watching me, you see I do this funny thing with my mouth sometimes. I have a condition called trigeminal neuralgia. So my mouth hurts a lot when I talk. It's nerve pain that isn't real. It's almost like phantom pain with an amputee and the nerve gets messed up. And so it's telling you that you hurt even when you don't. So I was taking three different seizure medicines for that. And then I was taking anti-anxiety medicine and don't have a panic attack medicine. And, and I was taking antidepressants while I was drinking a lot of alcohol. Oh, oh, so much, so much, so much. It was not, I was just very unhealthy. One of the things I had to do is go to my uh, OB, my primary care to get permission to do this. I started the whole physical process. This was August of 2018. I started the whole process of creating Jack or whomever Jack would be. I had to go off all this medicine and I had a wonderful primary care doctor and I created a calendar within late and wrote all the medication names at the top and how many I took per day and each day, which one I would cut down and how many days I would keep that cut down dose before I cut down the next one. And we saved the mouth medicines. Well, we sort of did them all at the same time. So I wasn't going off everything one kind of medicine all at once. So it took me from August 15th until December 1st to become completely medication free from all those medications. Cause you can't just stop taking them. You can get very, very sick. And I do want to share, and this will lead into when I do my season about addiction and, and drug abuse and alcoholism and how that, that can affect your life and my experiences with it. I was a disastrous mess the whole fall of 2018. I couldn't feel my hands, my my, you know, I was tingly. I was heavy. I, you know, I gained a lot of weight. I couldn't sleep. At this point, I, I decided to start, try to start sleeping upstairs again and get off the floor in the living room. And I, I didn't sleep. My hands and feet were asleep at night. I woke up. I, I heard things. I would, 90% of the time, I just went back downstairs and, and slept on the floor. It was a really difficult transition to be in the upstairs part of my house. That whole fall, and we, you know, we, we got a dumpster and we cleaned the, the barn. And we had the first time that we had sort of a real Thanksgiving. And and the whole time, I just felt like I was beside myself. And I think I've spoken about this before. I, I, I just was very, very, I was just out of it. And I could not wait. I will tell you, I could not wait until I could be myself again. I remember saying it so many times to Kenny, I'm not myself. I, I feel like I'm standing next to myself. And I felt dizzy a lot, and just really, really surreal and out of it. So a shout out to anyone out there that has struggled with drug, drug addiction. And I would say, especially because of the drugs I was taking, that, that prescription drug addiction and, you know, all of the things that, that we read about in the news that cause tragic overdoses and such. Those, th those, you know, I'm very proud of myself. I was able to come off all of them, but it was a miserable experience. One of the hardest things I've ever done. And I've done some hard things. So at the end of that was when I realized I would have to have my mouth fixed because the pain in my mouth without taking all those anti-seizure meds was profound. And that would be, that precipitated sort of a, a corner turn in the next step in the story of Jack. So what I did was I called, and this is another little miraculous piece here. I called, I was at work one day and I was holding my face and a gentleman I worked with said, do you have trigeminal neuralgia? And nobody knows what this is. So I was sort of dumbfounded with the question. And I said, well, yes, I do. How, how do you know this? And he said, well, my, my wife had it. And I said, had it? So he explained that she'd had surgery at Mass General and that Dr. Imad Eskandar was her surgeon. So I was profoundly excited. Now I heard about this a long time prior to my mouth and Jack and all of this. So at this time, fall of 2018, I thought, you know what? I need to get, I need to see if I can get my mouth fixed. If I have to have brain surgery to have a baby, I need to get on that. And so I called 
I was coming home from somewhere. It was fall and I was in the car and I think we were going through New York. And so I thought, oh, I'll email Dr. Eskandar. And so I did, I emailed him. I, he was no longer at Mass General. He was at White Plains, a facility called Montefiore. And he wrote back almost immediately and said, I would be happy to consult with you. You need to go have an MRI with contrast. And once you have that, send the results to me. Because depending on what's causing the trigeminal neuralgia, the surgeries are different. Sometimes you have to cut the nerve. Sometimes you have to move an artery off the nerve. There are different things in the nerve center, which is right here, that can cause the shooting pain. Some people have it here, some here, mine's down here, back here. So that was that. Was that. So it was the end of the, <laughs> the, end of the month. It was end of, right around the end of November and I, 2018. And so I made the appointment and I went and had my MRI. And the results of the MRI are where I'll begin the next part of my becoming a mother again at 57 journey. But the results of the, of the MRI were, were profound and, and astounding. And Dr. Eskandar is another huge piece of the miraculous side of Jack and the things, that, the things that happened to me in this process and the people that I met along the way. At this time, I will say, this is when I spoke in my opening episode about Karen Kenny. This is when I met her in the fall of 2018, I started my spiritual mentoring journey. And it made sense. I'm going off all this medicine. I'm, we're done with a lawsuit. I'm now at a point in my life where, you know, with my, in terms of Molly, she's never coming back. And so I started my spiritual mentoring, which was super helpful as I was going off all of these drugs because I was a disaster and a mess. She became another part of this story and another sort of piece of the miraculous part of it. So as I draw to a close here, I'm in my same little area. It's afternoon now, it's cloudy. So I don't mind being in here so much. And I'm sure if you watch the first one and you remember what was behind me, you'll see that something is a little bit different. So there's a little hat, I'm leaning over to my right. There's a hat that's on the wall. It's like a little fedora, it's adorable. And it was given to us as a gift for Jack Jack when he was born and he won't fit him probably until he's 12 because he's teeny, but it's adorable and little, maybe when he's three. It's one of those things that's just sweet. And so I put it on there to represent Jack. So I have Molly, Gracie, Jack. I'll have to find a baby gory item to put up there next time. Hmm, it's got me thinking. And then if you, you can see here, I have some onesies hanging on the wall where my Toni Morrison quote was. The reason I have those there is in our process of, of furnishing our home and, and clothing Jack, we didn't want to spend money. We didn't, not that we didn't want to spend money. We didn't want to use more of the earth's resources to, to house Jack. So we got everything given to us and we'll either give it back to who, who loaned it to us or we'll give it to the next person. I won't sell anything that was given to us in Jack. So bassinets and bouncies and, and strollers and Playpens and such all had other babies have their first months of life in them. The onesies come this particular set. This isn't the exact set, but it's the same set that came from a wonderful friend of mine, a grief mom named Sonia. She lives in New Mexico, Albuquerque, I think, uh, Midwest, no, Southwest. And she lost two children, her sons, David and Izzy. And, and she, she had been on and off Facebook for a while. And so she saw me holding a baby and she's like, oh my gosh, who's baby? I'm like, Sonia, honey, it's my baby. So then she went back and looked at everything. And so she immediately sent clothing. And so his auntie Sonia, who lives in New Mexico, is a piece of Jack's life. And this, is, this goes back to community again, like I talked about earlier with Gracie in the CrossFit workout. So I have those things behind me today because I'm talking about Jack and bringing him into the reality of life. So I'm going to end now. And I know it's just part of it. My, my goal and my hope is that by not knowing what happens next, even if you do, <laughs> that you'll come back and listen to episode three when I'm ready to record that one. Well, I mean, I'll be ready to record it. You'll listen to it <laughs> on schedule in September. I will finish like I always do on the method of happiness. I actually have a lot of really intense personal struggles going on right now. I'm an overthinker and I can convince myself things are true in my head, even if they aren't, I have to be really careful. And of course I'm a nursing mother. So there's no taking an anti-anxiety medicine. I'm, you know, medicine free for a long time now. And for the most part, I'm okay. I'm, I'm able to work out. And so 
in my challenge to make people happy, to live by Molly's quote, you know, to have your purpose make people happy in starting with my own happiness, spending time with Gracie and doing and with CrossFit people is a huge piece of it. Tomorrow morning, I, on Sundays, I do Sunday fun day at my gym in Concord. And that's my favorite workout of the week because we're really just there together, you know, supporting one another and bringing one another support and happiness. Not that I don't love my coaches and my weekday workouts, I do. But in terms of that internal happiness, that's such a fulfilling time at the gym for me. That was a happy time for me. And I know that bringing Gracie out into the community and, and introducing her to other people and having a day at the beach brought happiness to her. I came home and my mother was here and she was holding Jack. And oftentimes she doesn't have that opportunity. So that brought happiness to her. So as I close, think about ways that you can make yourself happy today. Think about one little thing you can do for someone else. And until next time, have a great day. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.